on the front row and listen to you sing that song for the next 30 minutes, and I could leave here totally full. But we're not going to do that. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 this morning. If you know me, you know that I love history. If you don't know me, um, I love history. I don't love history books, though. History books are boring and dry, and they're terrible, because they're written by people with letters after their names, and they just drone on and on and on. I like to read firsthand accounts of history. I like to read it from people who were there who experienced it and, and who write it down. And what we have this morning is a trip back in history in Acts chapter 2. It's been seven weeks since Jerusalem was in a total uproar. Seven weeks have passed, but the events are still fresh in people's minds. Because during the Feast of Passover, Jesus of Nazareth, one of the most respected rabbis in the land, but also somebody who was kind of a troublemaker, as as the religious officials viewed him, he was put on trial, he was arrested, and he was crucified right before Passover. The day of crucifixion was like no day that anyone had ever seen. Seven weeks after the fact, it's still fresh in people's minds. There were dark skies from noon to three. How do you explain the sky being like night from noon to three? There was darkness everywhere. When he died, there was an earthquake. The rocks split in two, tombs were opened, and there were Old Testament saints walking around in Jerusalem. That's a day like no one has ever seen. On top of that, in the precious temple, the holy temple, that holy place, the veil was split from the top to the bottom. And the religious leaders still have no good explanation for what's happened there. Put yourself in the mind of the common person in Jerusalem. We want to know what happened here on that day. What happened to our temple? I've heard rumors that the veil split from top to bottom. Can you tell us, O high priest, what happened? Well, there was a structural issue in the temple that day. Then you add to that, there's reports going around that this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, has been seen around town. There's reports that that he rose from the dead, and there's witnesses. His disciples supposedly have seen him. Several women who are with his entourage have seen him. And then you've heard rumor, there's a whole group of 500 people that he met with. But now he's gone. Again, he's gone. We don't know where he is. And in Jerusalem, we're getting ready for another feast. It's, it's the feast of weeks or harvest or what we call Pentecost. It's 50 days after Passover. And Peter, the most outspoken of Jesus' followers, a firsthand account guy, Peter, the brash one who in the Garden of Gethsemane swung his sword and cut off the high priest's servant ear, the one who failed miserably just outside where Jesus was on trial, who denied the Lord three times, the one who took off when he heard that Jesus was resurrected and ran to the tomb, didn't stop at the door, rushed right in, that same Peter 
the one who Jesus on the Sea of Galilee restored back to service, and the guy who has kind of taken the de facto leadership of the disciples, this Peter gets up 50 days after the death of Christ, and he tells all of Jerusalem what just happened 50 days ago. He tells them the whole story. And he gets up and he preaches before this large crowd. Now, I know it's hard for us to go back into time and understand what's going on here, but it is, it is a really highly charged atmosphere. Because now 50 days after, after the death of Christ, and now Christ has disappeared, the religious leaders are all thinking to themselves, we have finally succeeded, we have eliminated this guy from the, from the, public, you know, from the public sphere, no one's talking about him anymore. But then weird events start happening on the day of Pentecost. At the beginning of chapter 2, we find out that the Holy Spirit comes and he, and he, he takes up residence in all the believers at that time. And, and it doesn't just come in, a, in just a real quiet way. He comes as a mighty rushing wind and literally tongues of fire appear on these people's heads. And so big things are happening. And it's there that we find in Acts chapter 2 beginning in, in verse 14 that Peter gets up and he begins to explain what's going on. He begins to preach, and he tells them exactly what has just happened there with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he wraps up the first section of his message in verse 21. It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He wraps up his introduction to his message this way, and it comes to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then I want to focus in this morning on the rest of the words of this message. Read them with me this morning as I begin reading in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. How do you think that played to that crowd? Peter points the finger directly at them and he says, you killed Jesus. Verse 24, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with, with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he has both died and he was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says to himself, he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Father, in the next moments as we consider this passage of Scripture, I pray that, that you would do that same work in our hearts that you did on the day that Peter preached it, that you would, that you would work our hearts that, that you would, where our hearts need cut, that you would cut us at the heart. Where our hearts need to be emboldened, that you would embolden our hearts. It's only a work that you can do, and so we beg of you, Father, this morning to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. I love the way Peter approaches this. It's a pretty simple message. And the message of Easter is really a simple message, and it's very simply this. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and Jesus is now glorified. Like, I could sit down and shut up, but I'm not going to do that. He begins with Jesus in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. He uses an interesting title for him. Jesus of Nazareth. He uses his hometown. He's a real man from a real place. He had a hometown, and in, 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 the, in, the Jewish, in the Jewish economy, in the way Jewish people thought, being from Nazareth was nothing to be proud of, yet Peter gets up and he says, this guy Jesus from, from Nazareth, the one that you know about, the one who lived there in Nazareth, his father was a carpenter, he himself was a carpenter, and where Peter begins is he speaks about the humanity of this man. Jesus was a real being. He was a real person. You know all about him. You've been to Nazareth, many of you. You've seen that carpenter shop. Yeah, Jesus is the son of God who came. We sang about it. Come behold the wondrous mystery. We, we sang about the fact that he's the son of God. But, but Jesus was also a man and lived a very human existence. And as Peter begins this message talking about Jesus, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Then he goes on to say, he was attested to you by God with mighty works and with wonders and signs. And Peter now points back to the last three years where when Jesus burst on the scene, beginning at the wedding at Cana, and, and, and word got around, this guy changed water into wine. And he starts talking about the mighty things that Jesus did. Luke here, when he writes this, records it in three ways, as Peter says it. Mighty works, wonders, and signs. Think of it this way. Mighty works are the things that he did. The wonders are the reaction that he got. People were like, they marveled. They were in wonder at that. And the signs are, that was God giving to us signs to point us to exactly who Jesus was. But think about this. He was attested to you by God. He demonstrated that he was God. Water to wine, healing the crippled, healing the blind, 
casting out demons in people, raising the dead to life. Things that they had never seen in their lifetime were happening right in front of them for the past three years. And if they're thinking at all, they're thinking this. You know, that hasn't happened for the last two months. I haven't heard another report about anything miraculous happening. Hmm, just happens to be the same time that Jesus is off the scene. And as Peter's preaching here, the crowd you, you sense is, is, is looking at one another and they're saying, yeah, I was there when he healed the blind man. I, I, I heard about what happened when he brought Lazarus back to life. I, I know all these things that are happening. And then Peter says this at the end of verse 22. He says, God did this through you or through him in your midst, right in the middle of this. And he says, you know this. You know this. Now, you and I don't have the benefit of having been there 2,000 years ago and knowing this, but we do have a book that records it all, and guess what this morning? We know this. We know all these things to be true. Those of you who are here week after week, we're going through the book of Luke. If one thing Luke has taught us is this, is that we know all these things about Jesus are true, and we've seen some amazing things, haven't we? And Peter says, you know this to be true. And I say to us all this morning, Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he was. We know this to be true. He's not just somebody that was made up. This isn't fiction. This is truth this morning. And it's been given to us by eyewitness accounts. Peter isn't there, though, to tell them about how wonderful Jesus is, what a great guy he was, what a wonderful rabbi he was, what a great teacher he was, what a, what a phenomenal person and the amazing things that he did. He was such a, such a wonderful person, and he, and he really helped so many people, and, and you really ought to know this Jesus. You really ought to like him, and it's really a tragedy that he died. No, he's here to go even deeper with this message, and notice so in verse 23, he changes his tact. After telling them about who Jesus is and, and reminding them of the things that he did, he says, this Jesus, this one I'm just talking about, he says, he was delivered up. That word delivered is interesting. Literally, the word is surrendered. Surrendered. You know, we don't like to surrender, do we? Surrendering, mean, surrendering means you, 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 you are giving over. You are handing over. You, you are, you are, you're saying, I, I'm done with this, or, or I, I can't do this anymore, or whatever. But, but here it says that he was delivered up, surrendered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What? Yes. Peter, standing there in front of this large crowd, says this, God gave him over. God surrendered him up. This isn't new to you. I bet everybody in this room knows John 3, 16. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He surrendered. He gave his son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But I want you to understand this morning that God willingly delivered his son to be the savior of the world. Willingly did this. 
And, and it was decided long before. Notice it says this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We don't have time to get into that this morning, but just suffice it to say this. Long ago, in eternity past, God determined that he was going to give his son to die for the sins of mankind. That's wonderful, but then Peter goes where angels fear to tread in front of this large group. He says this, this Jesus, who was handed over by God, you crucified. Looking at the crowd, he said, you crucified him and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. It's interesting. God had a plan, but man, man was all a part of that plan and man chose to do the killing, didn't he? You guys, you guys killed him. You crucified him. You killed him. Now, I just have to stop here and ask this question. And it's a question we don't want to talk about on Easter Sunday because Easter Sunday is all about resurrection. It's all about life. It's all about lilies. It's all about tulips. It's all about bunnies and eggs and all that stuff. I get it. Why does this story have to involve death? Why? I hate death. Just being honest, I hate death. It is horrible. Death is a horrible thing. And here's the thing. Unless someone comes and defeats death, death is just unbearable. Do you realize that? Unless someone were to come and absolutely crush death to death, we all have no hope this morning. Unless someone were to come and, and, and destroy death and destroy its hold and destroy its power that it has over all of us, unless someone comes and takes care of that, we all have got a big, big problem this morning. But imagine the reaction when that accusatory finger points at the people and they says, you killed them. But you know what? That finger could be pointed at every single one of us in this room this morning. You killed him. I killed him. You say, wait, I wasn't there. Yeah, guess what? Every sin that we've committed was on him on the cross. We killed him. We're responsible for Jesus being on that tree. Every single one of us is culpable in this. We were just, in, just as much as the men who were literally there, we were the ones who, who would have rallied there on Friday and would have said, crucify him, crucify him. And so, really, this morning, to have that told to us, either one ought to humble us, or if you've never accepted God's forgiveness, it probably outrages you this morning. I'm sure these people were outraged by that. But let's understand, every single one of us, every evil thought that we think, every evil action that we do, the things that we, that we do that no one sees, guess what? All of those put Jesus on the cross. And so Peter moves forward, and he says in verse 24, God raised him up. God raised him up. He says it there, he says it in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. <laughs> we know who killed Jesus, we did, we know who brought him back to life, God did. He says, this Jesus, 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It wasn't possible for death to hold him. In fact, let's just consider that this morning. Death is a pretty powerful thing. Death touches all of our lives. And when death touches our lives, it changes us, doesn't it? When you lose a loved one, it changes you. When, when you yourself are there and, and someone that you love dearly dies, it affects you deeply. But let's understand, death isn't powerful enough to hold Christ. Earlier on in his life, he said this in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. I, I am the life. I'm the resurrection. Whoever believes in me shall not perish. You see, many times this is presented, and the, and the resurrection account of Jesus is presented like, hmm, Jesus died, he's in the grave, not sure what's going to happen here. As sure as Jesus was buried, it was just as sure that he was coming out of that tomb, folks. It wasn't possible for death to hold him. Peter, I'm not sure he was thinking that when Jesus was buried, <laughs> But now, 50 days later, he can confidently get up and he can say it after witnessing the empty tomb. Hey, it wasn't possible that death could hold him. Peter has something that you and I don't have. And I'm jealous today. You see, I've done a lot of funerals in my life. I've been a part of a lot of sadness over death. I've stood at a lot of graves. I've watched a lot of weeping families. I've been a part of weeping families that have wept over loved ones. And I've done it knowing in my head and believing in my heart that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Peter got up and he preached a message having looked into an empty tomb. Amen. Can you imagine how powerful those words were coming out of his mouth? And when, when Peter says that, that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, I love that phrase, the pangs of death. He's talking about birth pains. Every woman who's delivered a baby in this room knows all about birth pains. They are horrible. Thank God they don't last forever, right, ladies? Yeah. They don't last forever. They go away. And that's what he says. This death of Jesus was a horrible thing. It hurt a lot, it, but it went away because he rose again from the dead. And then he goes on to say, it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. It just never was in the equation. And to bring some proof to that, he offers some scripture. And we have to understand, Peter, when he's preaching this, he, he's got the Old Testament to work with, which is enough, okay? That's plenty. And so he's going to offer some Old Testament scripture here as his proof text for this. And he's going to go back to, to, to David, David in Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, Peter quotes him here, beginning in verse 25. He says, for David says concerning him, this Jesus, okay? Now, put yourself in the mind of a lot of Jews who are standing there. They know Psalm 16. They know the way the words go. And in their mind, what they've been taught all along is, this is about David. This is about David. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. You got this all wrong. This is actually about Jesus. David said this about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made me 
You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then Peter goes on to explain in verse 29, he says, this is, says, brothers, you know this about David. David was a great king. He lived. He's a patriarch. He died. He's buried. You and I can go to his grave today. We can go there and visit it. Just as much as you and I can go to some famous person in history, maybe it's a war, war you know, hero that you love. You can maybe go on the, you know, in one of the cemeteries in Normandy or somewhere, or you can go to, one of the, you go to Arlington and you can find someone buried there, someone who is really famous. They could go see David's tomb. He's like, what he's pointing out is the fact he's still there. He's still there. He's buried. And he goes on to say in verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Now he's making a case here and the people are starting to listen. Descendant of David. Yeah, that's Messiah, right? He foresaw, verse 31, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And Peter here now is boldly proclaiming to these people, these Jews, guess what? You killed your Messiah. You killed your Messiah. The one who had been promised, the one that the Old Testament has been telling us all about, you killed him. But God raised him up. Because it wasn't possible that death could hold him. You see, the same Jesus who performed those miracles that you loved watching and hearing about, was the one who you brutally crucified, this same Jesus rose again. But it doesn't end with resurrection here. And we should learn a lesson here from Peter. It's not just about death, burial, and resurrection when it comes to Easter Sunday. It's about what Jesus is doing right now. What Jesus is doing right now. And he keeps going. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. Verse 33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, what he's saying is, this Jesus is actively at work, even though you don't see what's going on, or you don't see him here as part of this, he's actively at work. And I say to you today that God through the person of Jesus, is actively at work in this world today. He's actively at work. We don't see Jesus here, but he's actively at work. He says another psalm. He quotes another psalm then at this point, Psalm 110 and verse 1. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, where is Christ now, right now? Where is he operating from? Well, he's operating from the right hand of the Father. Paul, writing about this in Philippians chapter 2, says this, that, that he's exalted. God's put him in a place where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter says he's exalted at the right hand of God. It was a common theme of those in, in, in the first century church to preach about the fact that Christ was exalted at the right hand of the Father. We don't get that much today anymore. And I have a theory behind that. If we don't talk about Christ being at the right hand of the Father and exalted and being glorified, guess what? We don't have to think about one day having to be in front of him and bowing before him. But just as sure as you are sitting here today, one day you will bow before King Jesus at his throne. You will bow before him at his throne. 
And he says then in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The same can be said to us this morning. The same Jesus whom we're responsible for crucifying with our sin, he is your Lord. He is your Messiah. He is. He's the one that, that all of history has pointed to. He is the one that, that God has prepared. He is the one that God determined long before time ever began that he was going to be the one who was going to be delivered over, surrendered. This Jesus. And now they're hit right to the heart. We've killed our Messiah. We've killed our Messiah. And I imagine there's some hopelessness at this point. And let's be honest. The Easter message for a lot of people, oh, that's great, that's wonderful. Once a year we have to go hear that, just like once a year we have to go hear the Christmas story, Jesus came and all this stuff, and now Jesus died and all this stuff. Until you respond to it, it's a pretty hopeless message. It is. It's a pretty hopeless message. Until you see yourself in the story and understand that it was for you, then there's real hope. And I want you to see one final thing that Peter ends with in this message. Because he could have sat down at the end of verse 36 and he could have indicted all the people and said, you killed this guy, it's all over, you're a bunch of worthless people, I can't believe you did this to the one that I followed. Look at verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? How sad would it have been if he'd have said, you're too late, you missed your opportunity, <laughs> you had him. You had him when he was here, and you blew it. No. You see, one of the great themes of Easter Sunday is the theme of grace. And there's so much grace here in verses 38 and following. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Here's what God does in response to the Easter message and the death, burial, and resurrection. He's calling people to himself. Because of what Christ has accomplished, he's calling people to himself. And, and, and there is some responsibility on our part. Look at verse 38. He says, repent. Repent is an important word here. Repent means that you have a change of heart regarding your sin that put Jesus on the cross. Repent means that, that you actually own up to the fact that you are a rebel and that you are relying on your own self-righteousness for your salvation. And, and repentance means that you, you change your ways. You change your thinking so that you can receive salvation purchased by Christ in his death and resurrection. And Peter says, it's pretty simple here, guys. You got to change. You got to repent. You got you to you admit some things here that, that, that you are responsible for the death of Jesus. And the same is true for all of us this, today. The way you respond to this is, is, is through repentance. 
And then he says, be baptized, which, which seems kind of weird because I thought it was just salvation by grace through faith alone, and it is. But he says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for, or it could say, because of the forgiveness of sins. And what Peter is asking these people to do is big here. He's asking people to publicly identify with the one who's just been put to death. Do you understand what's happening here? 50 days after Jesus has been put on trial and after he has been slaughtered, 50 days after that, he is saying, you need to repent of your sins that put Jesus on the cross and you need to publicly identify with him. That's what baptism is, is publicly identifying. Forgiveness and repentance are linked throughout the book of Acts. If we had time, we'd look at chapter 3, chapter 5, verse, and chapter 26. Because what happens is when you repent, God gives to us forgiveness for sin. And so, what happens? Well, I didn't read verse 41. Skip down to verse 41. On that day when Peter got up 50 days... Seven weeks after Christ was crucified, when he got up and proclaimed exactly what had happened seven weeks before on Golgotha, when he, when he told them exactly what was going on there physically and what was happening, if you will, in the cosmos with God himself and what God himself was thinking, when he explained that all to them, it fell so hard that 3,000 people identified with Christ publicly. Now i got to ask you, do you think the same religious leaders who were watching Christ were watching these 3,000 people? It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to do what they had done. But here's the thing. <laughs> Paul says this about the preaching of the cross, it's foolishness. And for many people in that crowd, it was what, what Peter said was just, that's foolish talk right there. That's crazy. That's, that's, you are out of your mind, Peter. Isn't that the same guy who cut off the high priest here? Yeah, he is crazy. He's a lunatic. But for 3,000 people that day, they were stabbed to the heart. Was Peter stabbing them in the heart? No. God's spirit was stabbing them in the heart. And if you're sitting here this morning and you are being stabbed in the heart by this, maybe this is the first time you ever realized that your sin caused the death of Jesus, I'm thankful you're being stabbed at the heart because that's God at work in your heart right now. If you're hearing this and you haven't received the salvation offered by Christ, I would beg of you, today is the day. Receive it. Receive it. But I want to talk to those of us who have received that for just a second. Do you remember when, when the day when you were like the 3,000, when, when, you, when you received Christ? Do you remember that day? Remember what that was like? Remember how excited you were? Remember, remember how, how enthusiastic you were and how you knew that your life had been changed? It gets you fired up, doesn't it? You know... You have a picture here in Acts chapter 2 of what a motivated follower of Jesus looks like in Peter. 
Peter wasn't just coasting until the time that Christ returned. Peter wasn't just like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, we had some really good times, and, 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 I, and I failed you, but you restored me, and now, and now I'm just going to love you even though you're not here. I'm just going to be in relationship with you, and it's just going to be cool. No, Peter was so motivated that he got up and boldly proclaimed this risen Christ. He was so motivated, he was so changed by it, that, that he couldn't help but stand up and proclaim this. And I say to us, what has happened to us that we're so ashamed of the resurrection of Jesus? What has happened to us that we're so ashamed of it? It's easy to proclaim it on Sunday morning in church, right? On Easter Sunday, right? I mean, the, our country expects you to be in church today, right? What would happen if we took the resurrection message out Monday after Easter and were as bold with it as Peter is? And then Tuesday, and then Wednesday. You see, the message is still the same. And the message is a message of life, isn't it? It's a message of life. It, it literally changes people's lives. Not just their lives here, but it changes eternal destinies. There is no greater message in the world than the message that we find in Acts chapter 2 that Peter preached. And it's a message that every single one of us needs. You need to know, I need to know that, that I was responsible for the death of Jesus, but it doesn't end there. We also need to know that death couldn't hold him. Aren't you so glad that death couldn't hold him? Because death, if death could hold him, we, we might as well just be having an Easter brunch this morning and, and picking flowers and having an Easter egg hunt, okay? Death can't hold him. And what's true about that is then, is if you're in Christ, death can't hold you. Death doesn't hold you. And I want to tell you, that gives me hope this morning because death is awful. Death is terrible. It robs from us every single day. But it's only a temporary robber. It's only a temporary thief to those of us who are in Christ. Because he lives, I too am going to live. Is that your testimony? Because he lives, many of the ones that I have loved that I've had to say goodbye to because I know they're in Christ, I'm going to see them again. Aren't you thankful for that? That's the message of Easter. That's the message of hope. This Jesus God raised up. Thank you, God, for raising up Christ. Father, Father,